Hi, my name is Rifki, and welcome to This Week Unpacked. A huge thank you to the Jewish Federation of Los Angeles for sponsoring this week's episode. If you listening are interested in sponsoring future episodes, be in touch. Send us a message at podcast at jewishunpacked.com. Okay, as we say in Yiddish, weiter, let's dive in. If you've been listening to This Week Unpacked for a little while, you know that we're excited and fascinated by Israel. With all of its complications, the state of Israel is a special place. And there are lots of reasons why. But this week, I want to talk about one thing that I find really exciting, but also really odd. Something Israel does that no other country in the world does. And even odder, it's not even something Israel does all the time. It's a very specific practice every seven years. So specifically only this one place, Israel, and specifically only this one time every seven years, including this year. So do you know what it is? It's called the Shemitah year, also known as the sabbatical year, and it's got ancient, ancient roots. Just like the Bible tells us about Shabbat, the Sabbath, the seventh day, in which we rest after six days of work, the Bible also states that every seventh year, after six years of planting and harvesting, the land of Israel must rest. The land gets a Shabbat. Now, there's a whole history of this wacky year. Because remember, this commandment to let the land rest, it only applies to the land of Israel. But Rifki, you ask, what about the approximately 2,000 years that the Jewish people were in exile? Was Shemitah largely theoretical? That's a great question. Thank you for asking. Yeah, of course, there were always Jews in Israel. But when there were so few people even working the land, it was less of an important law. But then, around 30,000 Jews during what's called the first Aliyah of the 1880s began this great return to the land of Israel. And that's when a practical debate began to emerge over the question of how to bring back this observance of Shemitah, because there are clear and worrying implications here. For the farmers who have to think about their livelihoods, I mean, they have to ask, could we really afford to not work for an entire year? But also, it's not just the farmers. Think about all of the people who live in the land of Israel, who depend on this work for their food. Can they really go without the land's produce for a full year? These are legitimate concerns. And in the 1880s, the rabbis were really sympathetic. It wasn't just theoretical anymore. It was real people's lives. So the rabbis went back to the drawing board and they actually found a creative solution for Jewish farmers to observe Shemitah while continuing to farm the land. In this week's episode, we're going to dive into that creative solution, but we're also going to ask the bigger questions. What is Shemitah really all about, and what does it look like today in Israel? And what do Israelis, religious and secular, think about observing this biblically mandated year in a modern Jewish state? Okay, let's start with defining our terms. I know, always the most exciting part. Shemitah literally means release, and it's discussed three times in the Bible. And in all three passages, we kind of are focused on different themes. The first time Shemitah is mentioned in the book of Exodus, the commandment to let the land rest is associated with the Bible's concern for people in need, as well as for animals. The second time in Leviticus, Shemitah is presented as a year of rest for the sake of the land, which is kind of weird, right? Because why do I need to be nice to the land? Rabbi Julian Sinclair, who translated a really important essay by Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook about Shemitah, an essay that we're going to get back to soon, explains that we have a responsibility as humans to be stewards of the earth. Quote, we should not treat the land as merely a resource to be perpetually exploited for our benefit. The land must also rest. The third time in a passage in Deuteronomy, one more element is added, that during Shemitah, debts are to be forgiven. 
Meaning, if my friend John is going through a lot, and I loan him $10,000 because I'm very generous, and then the next year is the Shemitah year and he hasn't paid me back yet, well, I'm fresh out of luck. That loan is now gone, or even. And the passage of Shemitah, it actually goes on to describe the obligation of giving tzedakah, kind of imperfectly translated as charity, and not withholding loans to the poor, meaning there's a strong association between Shemitah and caring for other people. Right, so our three mentions basically seem to focus on our concern for those in need, people and animals and land, right? So there's a lot more to be said here, but there's a really important connection point between the laws of the Shemitah year and the Torah's themes of creating a just and equitable society in which we care for all others. So as we opened with, the modern version of Shemitah really only came back into focus around 150 years ago. But let's go back, way back, into Shemitah observance in ancient Israel. Rabbi Sinclair explained that we actually really have evidence for Shemitah observance back in the Second Temple period, in the 5th century BCE, as detailed in the Bible, in the book of Nehemiah. However, after the Roman exile, the observance of Shemitah lapsed until the modern era of the 1880s. Modern. Now, remember the pickle that we brought up before, that Shemitah could potentially be ruinous, both for the farmers and for the actual people living in the land of Israel who relied on that agricultural produce? Sinclair explains the problem and that creative solution I mentioned like this. Quote, With the advent of the Shemitah of 1888, it was clear to the pioneers that observing the sabbatical year as commanded in the Bible would be economically ruinous and would likely lead to the extinction of the nascent agricultural settlements. For a solution, they appealed to European rabbis, who ruled that they might continue to work the land in the sabbatical year, provided that the land was sold to non-Jews for the duration of the Shemitah. This leniency was patterned after the permission to sell chametz, leavened food, to non-Jews during Passover, in order to avoid serious financial loss. The Heter Mechira, as it became known, was seen as a temporary expedient, It was renewed for the Shemitah years of 1895 and 1902, each time amid bitter criticism from the old Yeshuv, which was not engaged in agriculture, and saw the Heter as a specious device for avoiding a biblical commandment. Just to add a note from Rifki again, the old Yeshuv is another name for the traditional Orthodox Jews in the land of Israel. So the rabbis ruled that the farmers could use this Heter Mechira, this permission, to continue to work the land. So as Rabbi Sinclair said, the farmers used this Heter Mechira, this permission, in 1888, in 1895, and in 1902. But by the next Shemitah, in 1909, most people in the land of Israel didn't really have a different vision for what Shemitah could look like. And there was a real fear. What would it look like without this Heter Mechira? How could the state survive it? Well, in the summer of 1909, several months before the Shemitah year would begin, because of course the year begins with Rosh Hashanah in about September, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, who we mentioned before, commonly known as Rev Cook, the leader of the religious Zionist community, published what ended up being a really critical essay called Shabbat Haaretz, translated as Sabbath of the Land, which is, of course, what Shemitah is. As a religious Zionist, Rev Cook strongly supported the Jews returning to and farming the land, and this defense of the Heter Mechira was critical to the momentum as he saw it. Sinclair summarized Rev. Cook's basic view on the Shemitah controversy. Quote, The very viability of Judaism was on the line. If the law could provide no solution to the most pressing existential needs of the farmers, they would turn their backs on Judaism in droves. If the rabbis showed themselves to be oblivious to the most basic needs of life, the result would be the destruction of Torah and the abandonment of mitzvot. No big deal, right? 
However, the publication of Shabbat Haaretz wasn't as accepted as Rav Kook would have liked. The Ridbaz, who was an important rabbi in Sfat, argued that using a heter mechira was a blatant transgression of the biblical commandment of Shemitah. The Ridbaz actually specifically made sure to purchase a plot of land before the Shemitah year of 1909 just so he could let it lie fallow without touching it. And by the way, this practice continues. Some Orthodox Israelis continue to buy land right before Shemitah years today. But ultimately, Rav Kook and the Heter Mechira won the day. When the State of Israel was founded in 1948, the chief rabbinate adopted the Heter Mechira as a standard part of the Shemitah year. In 2007, the chief rabbinate tried to change its policy slightly. They attempted to give regional rabbinates the freedom to decide whether to give the okay to produce that was grown under a Heter Mechira. However, Israel's Supreme Court ordered the rabbinate to rescind its ruling and maintain the national policy of Heter Mechira. So people who don't accept the Heter Mechira, what do they do? Well, some of them purchase Arab-grown produce or produce from abroad. Some also buy produce through a program called Otsar Haaretz, translated as Treasure of the Land, which supplies different types of produce, some collected from the previous year, some grown in water so it never touched the land, pretty creative, and some from the Arava Desert and parts of the Negev, which are actually considered to be exempt from Shemitah observance. So that's Shemitah in Israel today, and as you've heard, it's still really complicated. Some rely on the Heter Mechira, some rely on other options, but honestly, very few people are thrilled with this kind of helter-skelter approach. In a Jerusalem Post op-ed, David Weinberg, who's vice president of the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security, argued that the current solutions are unsustainable for, quote, health, nationalist, and religious reasons. Instead, Weinberg wants a solution that balances all of the priorities. There's a really interesting initiative working to expand awareness of Shemitah and its relevance to society today, and it's called the Shemitah Project. It's powered by Chazon, which is a Jewish nonprofit that focuses on environmental education. According to their website, the Shemitah Project, quote, wants to explore the ways that traditional teachings about Shemitah shed light on a significant range of contemporary issues, including rest and work, relationship to land, relationship to community, relationship to debt and debt relief, definitions of community, and the issue of consumption itself. So, you know, just a couple of things. Daniel Taub, who's the former Israeli ambassador to the UK, also wants to focus on the bigger themes of Shemitah. He writes poetically about the potential of Shemitah as universal Shabbat. Right, when we think of Shabbat, we think of the day in which we don't work. We take a break and just allow ourselves to be, to think, to be creative, to spend time with others. And according to Taub, we can do that with a Shemitah year. We can take ourselves out of the, the workforce, the rat race, and instead spend time thinking and experiencing, renewing our relationships, caring for others. It's a completely different way to think about what a year could be. So ultimately, where does this leave us? At least for Israelis, there isn't yet a clear answer for how Israelis should observe Shemitah, at least in relation to the land and to agriculture. But at least for myself, I walk away from this topic inspired. Yes, I'm in America, and I'm not a farmer, so again, maybe Shemitah doesn't exactly impact my life. But when we go back to this conversation about values, I really hope it does impact my life. I want to use this year as an opportunity to think about the universal and biblical values of compassion, rest, care, and sensitivity for others. Who's in? Thanks for listening. This Week Unpacked is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. 
If you're listening to this, but you don't subscribe to the show, what are you waiting for? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and check out our other Unpacked podcasts. I think you'll like them. And of course, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts is the best way for other people to find us. Last but not least, we want to hear what you think of the show. Anything you have to say, I'm ready. The inbox is open. Email us at podcast at jewishunpacked.com. Research and writing for this episode was led by Sarah Himmelis, and the team includes John Kunza, Avi Posen, and Rob Perra. Noam Weissman is the executive producer of This Week Unpacked, and I'm your host, Rifki Stern. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.